You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Father, I thank you that you loved us, that you have proved your love, that you had demonstrated your love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I thank you that we only love you, and we only have eyes to see you because you have given them to us first so that you get the glory, so that you get the praise, so that you get the worship and we get no credit except for just we bring sin to the table and you bring grace. And that, that's where we just, we just stand and we worship. I pray as we look at the words of Jesus, as we look at that which has been written for us that it may equip us for every good work, I just pray you'd use it in our lives whether this is appropriate for today or maybe in three years from now or whatever it is, Lord, but now we would just hear from heaven that you would fill me with your spirit. Lord, this text is so real and tangible to me. I see it all the time, and so I just pray that you'd give me grace to speak it to your people so that they may, with fresh eyes and fresh ears, fresh hearts, hear it. So fall on us, use me for your glory despite the fact that I have nothing in myself making me capable to do this. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, you guys can stand up. Sit, sit down real quick. Go ahead, <laughs> sit. Have a seat. We're gonna make sure you guys, you know. All right, I want you to stand up again real quick. Just come on, stand up. There you go. Come on, you guys. I know that the first service was really rebuking you. They were saying, we are the Christians and you are the not Christians because they came early on a day that's cold and they lost an hour of sleep. So this is the unholy crowd, so I'm just making you up and down a little bit, making sure you're awake, right? Because some of you look a little drowsy and you sang a little drowsy. So by the end, hopefully, you, okay, you can sit. For real this time. Maybe. Maybe in the middle of the sermon, I'll make you stand. And you'll know who's sleeping at that moment. It's the guy that's sitting there asleep. It's kind of like the guy in class. Um, or I'll just call you out and say, could you go stand in the back there? You're sleeping and you need to stand up. My teachers used to do that to me. Um, we got a lot of material to cover and so I'm gonna jump in. Um, have you ever had someone in your life, maybe major influencer, just someone that you saw as strong, someone you saw as, as a rock, almost invincible seeming? Um, maybe it was a coach or a teacher or a pastor or an elder or a someone who discipled you, uh, a mom who, had, you know, she's ahead of you, and so you just look to her for guidance and counsel and strength and almost put them on a pedestal, and then all of a sudden it was like, what happened? That person who you thought so highly of, that, that you respected so much, 
so, had so much influence in your life, they're in a dark place. They're struggling. And you're like, I didn't, I didn't think that person struggled. I didn't think that person wrestled with things. Um, I was in, when I was in high school, I ran cross country. And I was a, a cross country of our, a team, for those of you who aren't runners, has seven people on the team, on the varsity team. And, I, and, and so your, your best seven runners, I was like the number five, six guy, right? Um, our top four runners were all Division I full ride scholarship guys. I mean, it was like every race was them. They'd cross the finish line together. And then the rest of us peons, right? So they're all going to Georgetown and Syracuse and whatever. But there was one race that I remember. It was my, my senior year. And I'm running, and I'm, again, a five, six guy, so I'm kind of middle of the pack guy. And I come up to our number of kind of three, four guy. They were always interchanging because they're all so good. His name was Bill Belden. He was like six foot one, weighed like 40 pounds. He was like a dream runner, okay? <laughs> I mean, he actually got a full ride for rowing to uh, Syracuse, but he was just an unbelievable runner. And these guys are running, you know, five minute, they're running 15 minute, three miles. They're up front. I'm running 16, 30, like a minute and a half behind them usually. And... And I come up to this guy, and I'm, I'm running by Bill. I'm like, what are you doing back here? And this guy's just laboring. I mean, he's, you know, I'm like four foot six at this point, and he's like six one. And I'm like, what are you doing, Bill? What are you doing back here? Right? I'm like, get up there. You're supposed to be up there, not back here in the middle of the pack with us losers. And so I end up finishing ahead of him, thinking, look at me. I'm better than Bill Belden, right? That was the only time I ever beat Bill Belden in anything. Um, but actually, I, I still, and I, when I was preparing this sermon, for some reason, that came to my mind. Y'all, that was 25 years ago. I can even remember that it, we were running at Salderton, which is like, I don't even know where Salderton is, but I remember we were running at Salderton. That, that moment sticks in my mind because I think it was one of the first times that I saw that people that you look up to, people who are strong, people who, who have influence, they actually struggle too sometimes that they stumble and fall and they're back in the middle of the pack with the rest of us, like me. That kind of made me feel good, to be honest with you. But we're gonna come to a text today. We're gonna see one of our studs, one of our heroes, one of the guys that you would least expect it in a dark place, in a dark place. And it's almost shocking. And we're going to talk about how that happened, why that happened, and maybe if, so, so that if we ever find ourselves in that place, or if we are that person, or we have friends there, that we are able to kind of help. Because y'all, it's going to happen. At some point, Bill Belden is going to be in the middle of the pack. It's just going to, I've been in this, this job for only 10 years now, and I've seen it multiple times. Guys that were here that I thought, man, and they're in, their, in a bad spot. And, that, and that's fine. It is, it is normal. Why? Because as Spurgeon so wisely said, because the best of men is still men at best. Right? And so all of us have that capability. And so we're going to talk about it today as we come to Luke chapter 7. And we're going to cover the first 35 verses. Really, the crux of our passage is going to be in 18 to 35. And what we're going to see is one of the heroes of the faith, the greatest Old Testament prophet, Johnny B., John the Baptist, is going to struggle in a way that you would never would have thought. If you figured John the Baptist is going to struggle, he's going to struggle with eating bugs or his body odor. Those are struggles for him. But what we're going to see him struggling with is doubt. With doubt. I mean, how, how random is that? Right? 
And so we're gonna see why as we look in. If you're new to the Bible, you're, you haven't been here with us, we've been working way through Luke. John the Baptist, let me just give you a recap of who Johnny B is, okay? He was a prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. He was a miracle baby, right? His, his mama was way too old to be having kids. In fact, it's, it says that she's, she's beyond her time. She literally has one foot in the grave and, oh, you're pregnant, okay? Right, so who knows how old she was, but she's too old. She's too old. And so John the Baptist is born as a miracle baby. He grows up and he leaves home. He puts on leather and starts eating bugs and honey and he moves to the desert. And he starts preaching in the desert and he's telling people they need to turn from their sin, they need to be baptized because the kingdom is at hand. And, he, and he's having an effective ministry so much that people are like, hey, maybe this guy is the Messiah. And so he tells them, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to untie Messiah's shoes. And then one day, Messiah shows up and says, Johnny B, I need you to baptize me. And he says, no way, Jose. You know, I'm not gonna baptize you. He said, you are gonna baptize me. And he said, no way. Yes, you are. And so he does. And as he baptizes Jesus, the heavens open, a dove ascends, lands on Jesus in the, for, uh, the uh, manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And, and John literally hears the voice of the Father, okay, say, this is my beloved son. And you, I am well pleased. He hears heaven speak. Jesus goes off to the wilderness, and then Johnny B keeps preaching like he's been preaching. But one thing he does that gets him in some hot water. He's calling out Herod. Herod's the king, the kind of the governor of the area, and he's got this like Jerry Springer lifestyle. All right? He's got, he's married to his brother's wife. Okay? That's kind of a fun Christmas time. But on top of that, he, he thinks his niece, who's a teenager, is cute, so he has her kind of do like lewd dancing at his parties, right? She kind of comes in to do her little thing for his big parties. He's a sick dude with a sick life, and so Johnny B's calling him out and said, this is sin, you need to repent, and this is not America and freedom of the press and all that. And so what Herod does is he throws his tail in prison, and there he sits for just doing what God called him to do. And meanwhile, back in Galilee, Jesus is going and healing and doing all these things and everyone's talking about Jesus and how great Jesus is. And here's Johnny B sitting in prison, rotting, thinking, what am I doing here? Right? And that's where doubt starts to creep in. And he's hearing things like what we're going to see in chapter seven. We got two miracles right up front that we're going to kind of breeze through because I think the reason Luke puts them here is to highlight that Johnny B is here and Jesus is out doing all this and everyone's telling Johnny B all the good that Jesus has done. It's just making things worse for him because he's sitting in prison. So let me just read. Well, let's work through these two miracles real quick and we'll jump to the heart of the passage. Verse one. After he finished this Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, after he finished the sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the el sent him to elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So you have this centurion. He's a middle-ranking Roman soldier, kind of like an NCO, you know, like a staff sergeant or, or something. He's over about a hundred people, and he's a Gentile, which is a huge piece here, by the way. Right? He's a Gentile, and he's got a servant who is probably Jewish who is to the point of death. Matthew says that he's paralyzed, and he is in agony, and he really loves this dude. So he calls the leaders of Capernaum together, the elders, and says, Jesus is near. I need you to go get Jesus and bring him here to heal my servant, please. Go get him. And so they do, in verse 4. And they came to Jesus, and notice how they, what they say to Jesus. All right? They come earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. 
He is a good guy. He loves our nation. He, he gives us money to build our church. Jesus, you owe it to this guy to come, to come do this for him. He deserves this. That's what they're saying. Very Jewish leader, right? Earn God's favor. Earn what he does for him. So Jesus goes. He went with him. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion, he hears that Jesus is on his way. And he sent friends saying, Lord, notice the language. He calls Jesus Lord. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. The Jewish leaders say he is worthy. What does he say? I, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. Therefore, I did not presume. And the word for presume in Greek means, it, it literally means he considers himself unworthy. It's like, kind of like double. I'm not worthy and I don't even consider myself worthy for you to come to my house. How stunning is this statement, y'all? He is the Roman conqueror who can order this and it happens. And he's selling the Jewish carpenter who he has conquered, his nation, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. I didn't even presume. I, just, I, didn't, I didn't even want you to have to bother. And what he says next is stunning. He says, just say the word, but say the word and let my servant be healed. You don't even need to come. You can do it from down there. All you have to do is say it and my servant will be healed. You have the authority to do that. And he says, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, he goes. I say to another, come, he comes. I say to this servant, do this, and he does it. He says, I get authority. I get that you have authority. All you have to do is say it, and it will happen. And Jesus heard this, and he marveled. And you know, the only time Jesus marvels in the Gospels is when people have faith or when they lack faith. That's the only time. Those two instances. And he says, I haven't even, I haven't seen in Israel this much faith. I mean, Israel who has the prophets, Israel who has the Old Testament, Israel has the covenants, Israel who has everything. Here's this pagan Gentile, not born here, doesn't, not from here. He's got more faith than all my people. And it blows Jesus away. And then and, and Luke doesn't even deal with the healing. It just says, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. It just happened. It doesn't say Jesus did anything. Can you imagine that you're that guy? You're just on your bed, expecting to die, wanting to die, throwing up in agony, writhing in pain, and all of a sudden you're like, dude, I feel great. You sit up and you're like, what in the world, dude? Did I just eat some bad oysters? What happened? And he's, he's better. He's well. Just like that. Jesus healed some distance. Next miracle. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. It's 20 miles south of where he's at. Takes about a day. So it's a day later. And his disciples had a great crowd with him. So all these people, hundreds, maybe thousands of people following Jesus. And they're going. Anytime Jesus comes to a city, it's like, you know, it's like a big party. It's like St. Patrick's Day. Everyone's excited. We can't wait to see him. And as he's drawing near the gate, behold, a man had died was being, was being carried out. So there's excitement going into the city and coming out of the city. There's wailing. The, the funerals of that day, there would be wailing, public mourning. You'd hire mourners to, to yell and scream. And this is, a funeral's bad enough. This is a very bad funeral. Because the man who died was a young man, the only son of his mother. He's an only child, and she's already a widow. So a widow loses her only child. So it's, she only has one kid, and he dies, which is devastating. But on top of that, now she's alone. She has no one to provide for her. There's no 401k. There's no social security. There's no government programs. She is alone, and she is destitute. So all those things are going on as they're coming out and people are mourning and Jesus' group's all, yeah, yeah, Jesus, yeah. And they, they kind of meet in the middle. And so Jesus, 
he sees her and he has compassion and says, do not weep. She's like, really? You wept when Lazarus died. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Don't weep. And he stopped. This is it's a great scene. You gotta get your sanctified imagination out. If it goes crazy, who cares? All right. But Jesus, there's a funeral. So just picture a funeral procession. You know, Fox and Weeks is going down Duren. Everyone in the limousines. And some guy just walks out in the middle of the street and says, stop. And he goes to the beer. And that is not a drink. That is a cot with a body on top, just so you know. All right, spelled wrong. But it's just an open casket kind of thing. And he stops it. And he touches it, which makes him ceremonially unclean, by the way. And he says, young man, I say to you, arise. Get up. Now picture it down in Duran. Go up to the coffin. Open the Cadillac. Sir, get up. And he does. And, and Luke highlights the fact that he was dead. He's a doctor. He knows dead. The dead man sat up. And everyone else fell down. That's what it should say, right? <laughs> everyone else passed out. But not only does he get up, he speaks. What y'all doing? Got a parade going on? What y'all, what's happening? I mean... Why is everyone dressed in black? Mom, why are you crying? I mean, just put yourself there and the shock and awe. And so he helps him get down, returns him to his mother, and, and fear sees them all. You think. You think. And I know you hear, duh, read, rise from the dead, blah, blah, blah. You, you got to understand, in the 66 books of the Bible, y'all, this is a very rare occurrence. Okay? Raising from the dead don't happen a lot. Two guys in the Old Testament. Elijah raised one person from the dead. Elisha raised one person from the dead. And then there's this really weird scene where the bones of Elijah are in his grave and someone falls on top of it and he comes back to life. It's very Indiana Jones, but he wasn't alive to do it, okay? So I don't count that one for him, right? Even though it was his bones. But three people there, Paul does one guy who falls asleep in his sermon from the balcony. I don't have that power, so y'all are out of luck if you fall out of the balcony. Peter raises an older woman named Dorcas, which is not a good name for your daughter, by the way. And then Jesus raises three people total, not counting those who come to life at his resurrection, but he physically raises three people. Lazarus, he, he does a daughter in a few weeks, we'll see it, and when he does this guy. That is it in the whole Bible. So this is a pretty big deal, okay? Pretty big gig going on, although Luke kind of just blows through it because I think the point is to get to John the Baptist. But understand, people are freaking out. And they're scared, but at the same time, they're like, a great prophet has arisen. Why a great prophet and not God? Because this is something that Elijah and Elisha has doing. So in their minds, this is just like one of the prophets of old. They don't re yet know that this is Messiah. They don't yet know that this is God. But everyone's talking. So verse 17, and, and the report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding countries. Everyone's talking, right? And it's getting back to who? Johnny B, sitting in jail. So verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And you can imagine, I mean, they, they go at visiting hours once a week or whatever it is in the prison, and they want it. Dude, your cousin is crazy, whack funky. You should see what he's doing out there. I mean, it is, he's last week, this guy, he's raised him from the dead. And he did this thing, he's like from the distance and like 10 miles away, and he heals the guy. And you wouldn't believe, if 5,000 people fed, you, dude, your cousin is a rock star. How does that make Johnny B feel sitting in prison? 
Look what he says. This, this is astounding, y'all. Verse 19. And John, after hearing all this now, calling two of his disciples to him, said, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? He says, after this, it raised from the dead. Oh man, amazing. You should see what he's doing. Here's what I want you to do. Go to my cousin and ask him if he's really the Messiah. Because I don't really know. You gotta be thinking, are you kidding me? How in the world can you be asking that question? I mean, this is the one now. Let's, let's recap. He's in his mother's tummy, six months old, and he's doing the triple Lindy when, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes in the room. He's flipping out inside. This is the one who just a few weeks ago said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one who said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. This is the one that audibly heard God speak. I've never heard the voice of heaven speak. He heard it. This is the one in John chapter one who I quote said, I have seen and bore witness that this is the son of God. How in the world is Bill Belden in the back of the pack? How in the world has, has, has he gotten to this point? You know what I think about it, though? I think it's great. Isn't it great to see the honesty of the Bible? That the Bible tells you that its heroes are not. They're not heroes. And here's what you need to know. Here's kind of big overarching principle. You need to know that it doesn't matter how strong a man or a woman is, that they are still susceptible to doubt, that strong, mature Christians go through serious depression and anxiety, and they struggle mightily. You need to understand that. Because we have this mentality in the church, well, he's strong, that never happens. And the problem is, is that we start as a church because we just are, we gravitate to, to people and fame and important people, is that we put our hope in man, we put our hope in, in people, and when they let us down, we're just devastated. I promise, if you put your hope in me, I will devastate you. I will. If you, put your, if you think this, oh, this church, best church in the history of the world, man, they don't, they don't do anything wrong, you need to come by on, during the week. You need to come to the member meeting. I, I'm just, we are broken as you are broken. And if you put your hope in man, you will be greatly devastated. That's not to say that we shouldn't trust mature people and follow them. We should. But the best of men is men at best. And you cannot get through the scripture without seeing the studs fall on their faces. Struggling with depression. Moses. Elijah. David. Daniel, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Jonah, Paul. And the great encouragement is, this is the varsity team. I mean, these guys are varsity. And so if I see the varsity guys struggling, me, I'm like, I'm like the middle school team. I know that I'm not alone. I know that I'm not an anomaly, that I got good company. And we need to know that as a church, right? We need to know that. That we need to remember what we sang earlier and we sang last week and that we always think about that there is only one man that we rest on and it is the God man, Jesus of Nazareth. That our hope, as we sung earlier, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That we dare not trust the sweetest, sweetest, sweetest frame, no matter how sweet it seems. But we wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's where we come, right? 
So, so what do we, how do we deal with this? What is, what is going on with John? Let me give you some, some thoughts of why he is wrestling with doubt. Let me give you some thoughts of why he is in a dark place. Not that he could do anything about it. Because look, if you are a follower of Jesus, at some point, I promise you, this is not prosperity, this is the truth. You will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You will. If you are married, unless you guys go down on a plane together, one of you is going to be a widow. If you are alive and have parents, that's all of us, you're going to lose one of them one day, both of them one day, and then your children are going to lose you. It, the, this, this is the valley of the sh- This is going to happen unless Jesus tarries. There's going to be losses of job. There's going to be anxiety. Some of you are going to go bankrupt. This this has happened. Some of you will be persecuted for your faith. You struggle with, with physical ailments. There'll be cancer. You will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. All right? So what do we deal? How do we deal with it so that we don't lose our faith? So, so, so you know when you're more susceptible or not. Here, here's one reason why we are susceptible, why John is. This is flat out his circumstances stink. Right? Sometimes life stinks, right? You guys, is that okay with you guys? Raise your hand if you think life stinks sometimes. Just making sure who's awake. If no one raised their hand, they're asleep. All right? Life stinks sometimes because you live in a fallen world. And there's something about sitting in a nasty, dirty, cold dungeon that makes me wonder, does God really love me? Especially since I've done nothing wrong. I have done everything God has asked me to do. I have not shirked away. I ate bugs, for goodness sakes, people. Bugs, I wore the same leather jacket and didn't shower for months. I did everything God called me to do and I'm sitting in a dungeon. Does God really love me? And what's worse is when you're in that place and you've done everything God's, you've been pure and you're still not married. You've done, you've done you're the best worker at the office and, and, and you still haven't got promoted. You're, you study hard and you still didn't get into med school. Whatever it is, you're doing what God's called you to do. You're doing your best. You're, tr- you're, you're following him. You're going hard after Jesus. And you look around and this guy that's a slacker and it's not, everything seems to be going his way and you're in the dungeon. That's when it really stinks. Circumstances, Right? Another thing it's, that John's struggling with is the fact that he's isolated. Yeah, he gets visiting hours, but for the most part, he's alone. And nothing good happens when you're alone. Just when you are isolated from other people, because that's when your mind starts racing and you start thinking. And I'll tell you, when there's that vacuum of nothing to do, this is why we said, men, you ought to work. I don't care if you, you know, just, because you can't sit around and do nothing. But when you, are, when you are alone with just your thoughts, Satan will fill that vacuum. He loves to fill a vacuum. And he brings these doubts, these lies. And you start thinking, I'm the only one who knows what like, to do with a spouse like this. I'm the only one who has kids like this. I'm the only one who knows how to lose it with, with, with the physical pain. I'm alone, I'm alone, I'm alone. No one knows, no one knows, no one knows, no one knows. Right? God doesn't even know. And, and John is there. And we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that, that Satan loves to get you alone and then fill your mind. He did this to Jesus in the wilderness, didn't he? If you were really the son of God, if God really cared for you, he's, he's the author of doubts. He is the author of confusion. That's what he does. And, and he's starting to think this way. Look, and, and, and of course he is. He's sitting in prison. And he's thinking, man, Satan's whispering in his ear, you missed it, Johnny. You missed it. He's not really the Messiah. 
And then he started, what if he's not really the Messiah? Then I've wasted my, my one job that I had was to point people to Messiah. And if I missed it, then I missed my, my, the whole purpose and I've wasted my life. And he's just thinking about this and it's going over. And if, if he's not really the one, maybe I'm not really the one. I mean, maybe he's the one that's supposed to point people because he's the one raising people from the dead and healing. And I never healed anybody. I just ate bugs. And he's questioning everything. And it's running through his head. Right? He's alone. And here's what I say. If you got doubts, you got struggles, you got questions, if, you, if that's you, the worst thing you can do is pull away. That's what we want to do because we're ashamed because I don't really know. I don't, I'm, I'm really struggling, but if I, I can't tell the pastor because then he'll think I'm like a demon. I can't tell my community group. I can't tell my wife that I'm thinking this. I can't tell my, my friends. And I would say that is exactly what the enemy wants you to do is to hide. And I would say that you need to do the opposite. We, we're not afraid of questions and doubts and we deal with it all the time. We'd welcome it. The other tendency is when we see someone struggling and we're like, I don't even know what to do. I don't even got a category for that. Our tendency is, well, I'll just let them kind of figure that out and I'll kind of wait till they figure it out and I'll stay over here. And I would say that is also the worst thing you can do, that you can move towards them. You're like, I don't know how to answer their questions. I don't know, what, I don't know how to deal with it. You don't have to. All you gotta do is get you some, some pizza, some root beer, go watch basketball with them. The ministry of presence is 90% of this deal sometimes. It's just being with people, crying with people, praying with people, wrapping your arm around people, saying, hey, we're here. I don't know, but we're here. That's, the, that's what the church does. Don't pull away. Get you some root beer, some pizza, and watch some March Madness and get to their house. Right? That, that's huge. We don't, that's why community, y'all, this is why we hammer community. That's why we provide community groups. This is why Craig... We just brought on staff. He's already started six new community groups in like four weeks just so you can get to know people, so you can be in people's lives. It's, it's so huge. And the last thing is, is he's got unmet expectations. And that's a, that's a bad deal right there. Because he's thinking, Jesus said, he was, I, I was prophesying that he will baptize you with fire. I ain't seeing a lot of fire. I see a lot of love. I see a lot of healing. I, he's supposed to be hammering them like I hammer them. He's supposed to be dealing with it like I deal with it. I thought Messiah was supposed to, and, and by the way, I thought Messiah was supposed to free the captives. Isn't that what Jesus said? I'm here to free the captives. Well, I'm captive. Here I am. Why ain't I free? Because maybe he's expecting like the walls fall down and there's a cute little Jewish girl on the other side of the wall and, and they're going to fall in love and they're going to get married, have 2.5 little Jewish kids and have a three camel garage and live the happily ever after life as he keeps baptizing people and eating bugs. Maybe that's his expectation. And, and what we as a church, here, here's what you need to get. This is hard for somebody to hear, especially when you're in the middle of it. But this idea that God is most glorified when, when things are great in my life, when I am happy and I got, I'm wealthy and I am healthy, that's when God is most glorified. Because then people will see me and see how well I have it. And they're going to say, man, you love Jesus and you got a job and kids and nice cars. Then I want to love Jesus so I can get those things too. And we have, we have, Put a false religion, a religion of cars and houses instead of religion of Jesus. God is not most glorified when you're happy and healthy and whatever. That's fine if he has given you that. But, but we need to understand that God is most seen as most glorious and most powerful and most worthy when everything has gone wrong and we still, through the tears, through the pain, through the suffering, say, God is enough. 
that he sustains me. I'm not saying that you're like, oh, good, cancer, happy, hallelujah. Oh, good, car wreck. Oh, good, miscarriage. Oh, good, divorce. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying in the midst of that, even if it's through agony and pain and suffering, that Jesus is enough. That is when he is most satisfied. That is when he is most glorified. Right? And so John, he's struggling with that. And I don't blame him. So what do we do? What what does John do? What does Jesus do? Let me give you some thoughts. And look, this is not, because I know the church and I know how I work and I'm a a typical guy. I'm an A plus B, take a pill, do this. When you are struggling, when someone else is struggling, please don't, don't give them this like easy verse Christianity. Well, if you're struggling with depression, you just need to do a longer quiet time. That'll, be, that'll work. That's what we do. You know, things are bad, but Romans 8, 28 says, God works all things, right? For those who love him. Someone's struggling with anxiety. You know, the Bible says, cast all anxiety on him because he cares for you. You don't think those people know those verses? Is that what they need to hear? If you just did a longer quiet time, spent more time in prayer, let's, let's, let's shy away from shallow Christianity that just makes everything like, hey, take two of these and call me in the morning. It's not how it works. I, I can tell you, I used to think that way, and then I've seen people in the valley of the shadow of death, and it don't work that way. Sometimes it's a daily step-by-step walking and even carrying people through it, right? But let me just give you some principles that kind of, that help us work through some of these things, at least, okay? How Jesus points us and how John, John points us to. Because John, even though he's in the depths of despair, he ain't giving up, which is what I love. So here's kind of the first thing. You find yourself there, you, you're helping people, is this, is start to doubt your doubts. When doubt creeps in, start doubting your doubts because your heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. And if you're listening to it constantly, you gotta understand it will deceive you. And so what I love about John is he's thinking, I don't know, is Jesus the Messiah? I don't know. I don't even know if he's the Messiah. And so what does he do? He doesn't just sit there and wallow in it. What does he say? He says, you two need to go right now. And so he sends two guys because he's doubting what he's feeling. That's a beautiful picture of what we need to do. I don't feel like I have, I'm loved. I don't feel like this. Start doubting and questioning doubts because it's probably the enemy speaking in jeer, right? And there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt's a matter of the mind. We don't understand. We, we don't get it. That's doubt. Unbelief is a matter of the will. I choose to not believe this. They're, they're completely different. He's not gonna sit in his doubt. He's gonna, no, no, I don't believe this. I'm, I'm gonna go check it out. Second thing he does is he seeks to hear from Jesus. I need you to go right now to Jesus. I need to hear from Jesus. That's, that's great counsel, right? And how would you like to be these guys, by the way, on this mission? Right? You gotta go ask Jesus if he's the Messiah. That's a tough job. And I love, I love the text how it unpacks. It's kind of almost humorous. They, and the men had come to him. They come to Jesus. It's kind of like he's in the middle of like healing people. I mean, crazy stuff going on, blind. And he kind of like tapped him on the shoulder. Jesus, excuse me, sir, buddy, hey. And, and, and it says that he's healing many people. So it's almost like Jesus keeps going. They're like, hey, John the Baptist has a question for you. He wants to know if you're the Messiah, and Jesus is still healing. And it says, in that hour, he healed many people. Diseases, plagues, evil spirits. You got this guy, Jesus casting out a demon. They're like, excuse me, um, can, I, got, I got this demon real quick. 
Oh, I got this paralyzed guy. And so everyone's done until he's like, okay, what did you, what did you guys need? What did you, you want to, you, you have a question for me? Yeah, I'll, um, you ask him. <laughs> we, yeah, we have a question. Oh, not us. We don't have a question. Your cousin, John the Baptist, he's got a cousin. We don't, we're fine. We, we got all the answers we need. But you're, you, no, you ask him. We, John wants to know if you're the Messiah. Should we, should we be looking for another Messiah or are you the Messiah? And how great, y'all, how gracious of Jesus to deal with such nonsense from them, from us, right? And it, I mean, he could be like, really? Are you asking me that, really? Here, here's another just point. I just added this last night late too. Um, but if, if you find people that are hurting, doubting, don't look down on them. I mean, just a side point. We have a tendency like, I can't believe that they don't blah, 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 and we fill in the blank. Well, Jesus doesn't seem to be minding that his cousin has doubts, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. So if he's not gonna look down on them, you shouldn't either, because to him who thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. If you're like, I could never be struggling with depression like that. I can't even believe that they would do that. I don't can't believe you have questions. You just better watch out, because to him who thinks he stands, you're in a position of falling real quick. Just a side point. But Jesus is gracious. He could say, really? <laughs> that cousin of mine. Does he not remember jumping? I know, yeah, okay, you don't remember the whole womb thing. But do you remember the whole voice of my father thing? Do you remember the whole your mom got pregnant at 100 and that's kind of rare thing? You remember the whole dove on the shoulder thing? Does he not remember? Are you serious? But he is gracious and he is compassionate. Look what he says. He answered them. Go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive the sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So here's what I love about Jesus. He could have so easily just said, yep. I mean, wouldn't that have been easier? Are you, are you the one to come? Yep. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, that's one word answer. That was the truth, right? Are you the Messiah? Yes, sir. Si, senora. Right? It would be so much easier just to say yes, but what does he do? He doesn't say, yep. He says, tell them what you see, tell them what you hear. Because, I mean, if John's got doubts and if, and if he thinks Jesus is a false prophet, then what's to say, if he says, yep, well, he's like, well, how do I really know? He says yes, but what, of course he's going to say yes. If he's a liar, he's going to say yes. So he doesn't point him to just say, yep. He says, tell him what you see, tell him what you hear. And then what does he do? He quotes like five different chapters from Isaiah of all things that were prophesied that the Messiah would do. Lepers, deaf, dead, poor. He just alludes to like all these different areas. Chapter 29, 35, 42, 61 of Isaiah. Why? So that John could go back to the promises and the truth of what God had said. So it's rooted in something. And this is huge for us. This is, this is a big piece, whether you're the one it's in the dark place or someone else, is that we need to point people to or to cling to the very promises of God. And I've used this application like 78 times in my 10 years here. That's because it is so significant. The idea of clinging to the promises of, of what God has said. He points them to the scripture. By the way, in this like Christian mysticism crap that I see out in our culture, sorry I use the C word, not really because that's what it is. 
that where I'm just gonna go out and listen for the voice of a tree to speak to me. God has spoken and he has put it in his word. If you wanna hear the voice of God, open the Bible. That is the very voice of God. These are the very words from heaven, from the throne room of God given to his church so that you would be comforted and have guidance and have, and have just in the middle of, of hard circumstances, strength. Right? That's, that's where he points John. How, how is it that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can stand at the fiery furnace and say, Nebuchadnezzar, you kiss my rear end, I'm jumping. Because of the promises of God. How is it that Daniel can go into the lion's den because of the promises of God? How is it that Noah could spend 100 years building a boat? 100 years it took him to build that thing because of the promises of God? How can Abraham leave his home of, of so long and go to a place he's never heard of because of the promises of God? How can a short, handsome king face a giant because he's got the promises of God? How can Gideon take 300 men against 135,000 because of the promises of God? How can Nehemiah build a wall around a city in 53 days that's been destroyed for years because of the promises of God? How can Paul and Silas sit in the dungeon, the basement of the dungeon of a Philippian jail, singing how great thou art because the promises of God? How can Peter and James and John get whipped and beaten by religious leaders and they walk out thinking, that was awesome because the promises of God. How can Jesus of Nazareth head to Mount Calvary and be crucified because the promises of God said, I will not let my Holy One, suffer decay. I will not leave him in Sheol. So he knows that the Father is going to resurrect him. This is what God has given his church to press us on. And look, sometimes it's enough for a week and sometimes it's enough for your daily bread. Oftentimes, it's enough for your daily bread to sustain you just for now. But it's the promises of God so that when you are standing there and you are feeling the weight of the world, when you feel like, I am alone in this, I am alone in this marriage, I am alone with these children, I am alone in this dorm room, I am alone in this depression, that you can go back and Jesus says, I know you feel that way, but I promise you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you when you are feeling the weight of your sin and your guilt and you're just ashamed and you're like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I would be that. That you would go back to the word where where Jesus said, no, I know it. But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you feel nasty and unlovable and unlovely and you feel the weight of that and no one cares and no one you feel like everyone has rejected you, you go back to the word that says, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. When you are anxious and you're worried about this and that and you can't sleep and you're waking up in the middle of the night and your mind is racing, that you go back to the promise that says, I have huge shoulders that you can cast this on me because I legitimately, I know it doesn't feel like it, I legitimately care for you when there's huge need and you don't know how you're paying your college tuition, you don't know where the mortgage is coming from, the car payment, the medical bills, and you're worried and you're stressed and you're like, I don't know how we're gonna feed our family, I don't know what we're gonna do. You go back to the promises, hey, hey, I feed the birds and you are much more valuable than them. 
when you can't stop crying, when you can't stop mourning, it's just tears are constantly running down your face. You know you go to the promise that, hey, I know you've been crying and I got every single one of your tears in a jar. And I, by the way, know how many hairs are on your head at this moment, which for some of you is easy, but most of us is not. That's the promises of God. We have them, the very breath of heaven sitting in your lap, on your phone, on the screen, access at all times. And, and, and Bun, you know, John Bunyan in his great work, his great allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, you gotta read it. Don't read the old version. It's like, oh, it'll be and thou. You won't understand it because I don't understand it. Get the modern version. And, and there's this great scene when Christian and hopeful are captured by the giant despair and they are taken to doubters or doubtful castle and they're thrown in the dungeon where he beats them and he tortures them and he encourages them to take their own lives before he kills them and they are just devastated sitting in this dungeon desperate in doubters castle and then Christian remembers he's like I got a, I got a key and the name of this key is promise, and it opens every gate in Doubter's Castle. And they undo their chains, and they undo the gate, and they flee the castle free. Why? Because of promises. And by the way, Bunyan wrote this, this allegory while he was sitting in prison, just like Paul wrote most of his letters while he was sitting in prison. The, the promises of God, promises. This is the psalmist gets. He says, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me, how? According to your word, your promises. Put false ways away from me. Graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. Sometimes you gotta, you gotta doubt your doubts and you gotta choose the way of faithfulness. Right? He, he gets it. Same with Psalm 42. I, my tears have been my food. He's eating his, that's the only thing he can eat is his tears. That's how desperate he is. At the same time, they're, they're, they're taunting him while everyone says to me, where is your God? So what does he do? He remembers God's faithfulness. I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead in the procession of the house of God with shouts of praise. He remembers the faithfulness. He remembers the promises. Maybe just a practical help for you is to sit down with someone who's struggling and just kind of highlight, hey, let's talk about all, what God has done. You got, you got a spouse. That's awesome. It's a gift. You got kids. You got a job. Look what God has done here. Look what God has done there. Look how he rescued you here. Look at, and just point them back to these Ebenezers, as the Old Testament calls them. The faithfulness of God. The promises of God. Right? We doubt our doubts. We don't let ourselves be isolated. And we cling to the promises of God. And I love how this text closes. I know I'm going long, so I'm going to fly through this part. What Jesus does next is he affirms John. You'd think he'd be like, can you believe that John the Baptist dude? What's wrong with him, right? But what does he say? And John's messengers leave. John, Jesus began to speak to the crowds. He says, what did, you, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are at king's court. Do you go out to see a reed? Do you go out to see a fickle dude in the wilderness? No. What did you go out to see? You went to see a prophet. And, I, and yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. He's even more than a prophet. He's a prophet and he's been prophesied about. And he quotes Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face to prepare your way. He is a prophet. He has been prophesied about. He's affirming John. 
which another application, don't even go there, is, is, is when people are struggling, affirm them, talk well about them. Don't slander them. Don't go, oh, you believe so-and-so is, oh. He, he affirms John. He builds him up. But then he makes this great statement. I tell you, those about, born among women, there's no one greater. John is the greatest man of the Old Testament to this point. I, I could live with Jesus saying that. Jesus, will you be my reference? Yeah, you're the greatest man ever. That's a great reference, right? But then when he says, yeah, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater. How is that? That don't make no sense. I ain't eating bugs and eating honey and wearing leather. How am I greater than John? Very simply because John, as an Old Testament saint, is looking forward to everything God would do. He doesn't know about the cross. He doesn't know about the empty tomb. He doesn't know about Jesus at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't know about tongues of fire coming on on the early church and them being filled with the Spirit. He doesn't even have the Spirit indwelling him. The Spirit uses him and, and at points, but he is not permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit like us. He, he doesn't taste fully what we have tasted. He is looking forward to all these things. We are looking back. We have that full revelation. We have the helmet of salvation. We have the, the breastplate of righteousness. We have the sword of the spirit. We have the shield of faith. Our loins girded with truth. Our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We have all these things. And in that way, we have greater than John the Baptist even had. So he affirms him. And then he closes with this. He tells a little parable. He says, when all the people heard him affirming John, Tax collectors, they declared God just. They're like, yes, us sinners have a way. They were baptized by John. But the Pharisees and all the, all the religious leaders, they rejected the purpose of God not having been baptized because they don't like John. They hated John. They want people to come to them. And so he tells a parable. He says, to what shall I compare all the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in a marketplace, calling to one another, we played the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge. We, you, you did not weep. For John the Baptist come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's saying, you guys can't be pleased. God sends different people to you all the time, and you're not happy with anybody. You always got opinions. Oh, you're too, too, the music's too loud. The music's too soft. It's kind of like when I le- read the Google reviews about our church. Just so you know, it goes right to me. It's like, that church is, I'm like, well, don't come back. We don't care. Too, the music's too loud. The music's too soft. The music's not somber enough. The music's too somber. Pastor's too tall. That's not true. Pastor's, yeah. Not, I mean, all these things. And I'm like, you know what? We play a dance. You don't, you know, we play a dirge. You don't mourn. We play the flute. You don't dance. That's not our job to please anybody. His point is this, though. He said, it doesn't matter what everyone, no one's going to, you can't please everybody. In the end, though, wisdom is justified by her children. What's that mean? That's real random. That message, that's kind of a paraphrase, says this. It's, it's interesting. He says, the proof of pudding is in the eating. The idea is, time will tell if what you trusted in was worth it. That's the idea. Whether you trusted in John and what Jesus had said, or you go the way, of the, only time will tell if it was worth it or not. That's the point. And he's saying, it will be worth it for those who trust Christ. For those, no matter what the life situation you got going on right now, no matter how it ends, it, wisdom and trusting Jesus will be justified one day. So how did it work out for Johnny B? Well, it's not the way I would want it to work out, right? I mean, I want to be skydiving and the parachute don't open. That's the way I want to go, right? I'm not going to go skydiving anytime soon, just so you know. But how does it end for him? 
He's sitting in a dungeon. He hears a big old party going on above him. And, and his, what he doesn't know is, John, is uh, Herod's niece is doing her little lewd dance for all these people that Herod's got. And everyone's so excited that Herod makes this rash promise and he tells this little teenage girl, anything you want in my kingdom, you can have it. Anything you want, one wish. And so she doesn't know what to go, what she wants. So she goes to her mama and says, mama, what should I ask for? And her mama says, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. So immediately the soldiers are sent down to the dungeon. The door opens like it had so many times before. John's sitting there chained up, not knowing if they're going to come up and you know, ridicule him. Not only if he's going to get beaten, maybe he's got visitors. But the soldier forces his two to his knees, puts a piece of wood under his head, and with just one lop, boom, Johnny B is now in the kingdom. He's in heaven. You say, well, that's not a good way to go. Well, the prisoner was delivered. Just not the way he may have wanted it. But the prisoner was delivered, just like Messiah said. He's in eternal glory, peace, joy, pleasure forevermore. Was it worth it? Was wisdom justified? Ask Johnny B when you see him. And so I'd say this morning, it's the same theme we've been looking at. Where have you built your life? Are you built upon the rock that is Christ and what he has done? Or are you built on your own deal? Right? When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every dark and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. That's, that's the Christian. And it's going to go up and you will be in the valley of the shadow of death, but you don't have to fear. Because we as a church will be there and your Savior will be there. He promises it. All right? We're going to worship. We're going to sing. You should be awake by now. If you're not, I can't help you. But let's worship. Why don't you stand with me? I will pray. I will worship our, our Savior, our Christ, our Messiah. Father. I...